Again, we are uh, officially starting now our series in Colossians. Uh, we'll be in it for the foreseeable future. Um, and we're here beginning uh, verses 1 through 14. And uh, the message of the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church is this. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Progress, in other words, advancement in the Christian life does not come by ascending to these higher mysteries because one already possesses the fullness of the faith at the beginning. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. To move beyond... To, to, to leave this beginning the way we have received Christ is only to regress, the apostle says. So the image is not so much of a child maturing and leaving behind childish things, but of a plant pushing its roots deeper into the soil in which it was planted. And at this beginning, that Colossians, that the apostle Paul points us back to, What one receives is not merely a set of doctrines or practices, but a person, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And in him, as opposed to anything else, one has all they need and more. He is the fullness or the completeness, and we are complete in him. And so this superabundance that's in Christ This fullness eliminates the need to supplement one's faith by any other means. It's already complete, lacking nothing and needing nothing. One must only delve deeper into what they have already been given. So the faith may seem complex, but in fact, it's very simple. It's all there at the beginning. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, simple, however, is not to say simplistic. In Christ, there is an infinite depth which one is always being drawn deeper into. In him, the apostle says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So one's world, one's vision of things is not truncated in this simple faith, but expanded beyond imagination, stretched out into the cosmic mystery of Christ himself. So such is the message of this letter. Completeness in Christ, fullness in Christ, this need not to turn anywhere else. But here, in the opening of Colossians, we're dealing with more introductory matters. The Apostle Paul is introducing himself to a church that he's never met, a church that he did not plant, this this church at Colossae. It was started by his uh, associate, Epaphras. And these opening words here, verses 1 through 14, are designed to build some rapport between the two camps. Paul meet the Colossians, and Colossians meet Paul. And after a, a somewhat standard greeting... We find similar greetings in the rest of his letters. The apostle gives thanks for the reports that he's heard about this church at Colossae. So he says there, beginning now in verse 3, 
down to verse 6. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing um, in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So we heard, the apostle says, referring to his wider entourage, that you heard. We heard that you heard. In other words, the reports that have made their way to Rome, where Paul is in prison, are about how the Colossians heard and received the gospel message. It came to them, not in word only, but in power, transforming them such that news had spread throughout the region. The apostle is chained. His ministry uh, stopped in some sense, but this word of the gospel is not. And he attributes this transformation not to them, as something that was accomplished by their own power, but again, the gospel message. It is the primary actor. It came through this man, Epaphras, but he falls into the back of the picture. The gospel is the actor. It's portrayed, this message, not as inert information, ones and zeros, but a dynamic power, a word that is endued with the capacity to bear fruit and to increase all on its own. So it was not by their excellence that the Colossians became such a a righteous people, nor by some secret technique or practice, but simply by virtue of hearing this message. They were transformed by hearing the gospel. And as it was then, so it is now. The gospel creates the church. This proclamation about Christ and Him crucified is the seed from which all fruitful congregations are born. Programs and techniques and relevance, these are not how the church adds to its number. Only this simple and powerful message. Jesus Christ crucified and raised the third day. This is the gospel power. It slays and makes alive. So having heard the gospel, it produced among the Colossians the three principal virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. The gospel transformed them, and these are its fruits. We heard of you, of your faith, the apostle says, and your love which you have, and also the hope laid up for you. So where the gospel goes, this message about Jesus Christ, these three are left behind as the distinguishing marks of authenticity. It is a seed that bears fruit consistent with its nature. The gospel produces not distrust and bitterness and hatred, but faith, hope, and love. And here is the standard by which we can measure ourselves. Is the gospel at work in our lives, producing this holy triad of virtues, 
Or is something else at work, producing something else? Now, and it may be something else, but the solution is simple. To hear the word once again. Other words produce other things. Only the gospel produces faith, hope, and love. The seasoned apostle hears reports of these toward the end of his ministry. And he gives thanks for the work of the word in the Colossian church. This is an authentic gospel work. Thus, we have two things. The power of the gospel and our hearing. The power of the gospel and our hearing. And as, I, and as I've tried to say, these two things are not uh, aspects of the Christian faith that we grow out of. Genuine transformation, not merely the suppression of certain behaviors, but new creation comes to us in this message and never apart from it. It is the power of God, the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Change, in other words, is not something we're left to sort out for ourselves. It's not that we're saved and then God cast us back upon our own resources. That it's something that we have to work out under the auspices of our own power and ingenuity. It is in this message, this powerful message about Jesus Christ dead and raised. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Which also performs its work in you who believe. So our action, though indispensable, does not come first in priority. It is only a secondary performance to the primary performance of the gospel. It performs its work, says the apostle. And its performance, the gospel's work in our life, enables our own work, enables our performance. So in some inexplicable sense, there is a living power communicated to us in this message. A power upon which we are dependent for change. So thus, as it pertains to us, hearing is always given priority over doing. Hearing is given priority over doing. Again, transformation is not something we conjure up from within ourselves. The result of our determination and our consistency. It is rather something we receive. Something that comes to us in the word. Our real doing then, our real work in this life is hearing. It's the word that works. And so I think the takeaway here is to slow down. Rather than turning to this or that practice or this to conquer uh, this or that ongoing problem, slow down and listen. Hear again the word of the gospel. Now this seems to be what the Apostle Paul is saying in another place to the Galatians. Chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, he says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit 
by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So having begun by hearing with faith, the Galatians have turned to other means for their Christian life, namely the law, its ceremonies, and its dictates. In other words, they have made their doing the primary thing, and so they've turned from the spirit to the flesh. Now let's take the Apostle Paul's question and just apply it to ourselves. How were you first saved in the beginning? How was the transforming power of God dispersed into your life, such that you transferred from darkness to light, from the flesh to the spirit, from death into life? How did that happen? Was it by doing some great work? Was it by accomplishing some religious deed? No. It was by hearing with faith. That is how the power of God was manifested in your life to bring you from death to life. It was by the hearing with faith. And as you began with that simple act of hearing this message and believing it, so remain. Now, it's not that these other things are unnecessary. This somehow excuses us from uh, exerting ourselves in the Christian life. By no means. Uh, But those things are secondary. Our hearing, this response of faith, precedes all forms of doing. Ours, at its rock bottom, is a, a receptive life. We receive this word again and again and again, and it produces in us faith, hope, and love. Thus, this word, Christ and Him crucified, is the only word that we're interested to hear. I determine, the Apostle Paul says, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Not wisdom, not eloquent speech, but this one message. Because, at the end of the day, it's the only message that transforms. So, it's the hearing of faith that works in the Colossians, and it's the hearing of faith that works among us. Now, this letter, as we've noted, was written from prison. Paul's apostolic ministry had taken a completely new shape. And we'll actually explore this a little bit more toward the end of the chapter in coming sermons. He traded out the intensity and the intimacy of church planting, being there on the front lines, for a role that is now defined by prayer and vicarious suffering. These day-to-day matters have been passed on to his associates, yet he still exercises a crucial role among the churches. And we see that demonstrated here now in verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience." 
So having heard how the gospel came to the Colossians and how it transferred them from the kingdom or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the apostle prays now, um, or rather does not cease to pray for them, asking specifically that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of God's will. Now, given the situation at Colossae, or Colossae, this prayer makes good sense. Remember, as we spoke about last week, the Colossians are opposed by some apocalyptic and mystical teaching whose various elements, angel worship and visions, this harsh treatment of the body, this particular ritual observance, threatens to denigrate the centrality of Christ in relation to their day-to-day lives. So this prayer then, where the apostle asks that you may know the will of God, is a prayer for a kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding that will lead them into the truth. Thus, when he asks that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, it's not so much about some particular or special direction for one's life, and more so about a deep understanding of Christ and all that he means for the universe. In other words, to the extent that the Colossians entertain this new teaching, they are in danger of getting the will of God wrong as it pertains to Jesus Christ. They have not quite grasped this one central thing about the Christian life, and that's that Jesus is at the center of it all. Now, in his letter to the Ephesians, which is a nice counterpart to Colossians, the apostle makes known what the Colossians had missed, right? He makes it really explicit to the Ephesians. This is what he says in verses 9 through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, that's Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So this will that the Apostle Paul would have the Colossian church know, which he prays that they would grow in their understanding and knowledge. And this will, he declares here, and that is that all things and heaven and earth would be summed up in, gathered together as one in, and united in Christ. So put another way, what the apostle is saying here is that Christ stands at the heart of all things, as to their origin, as to their current purpose, and to their final destiny that all things would be summed up in Jesus Christ. And we'll find later in Colossians, he says much the same, just with different vocabulary. So all things hold together in him. All things hinge upon him. He is the center around which everything else finds its meaning, which everything else is properly oriented. And in him, and in him alone, the deepest mysteries of the Creator end of creation are revealed. Just wait a couple weeks since we're going to get into all this, but 
in a sense, what the apostle is telling the Colossians is that they're going about their lives without the key. They've opened themselves up to this new way with its strange teachings and practices because they've not grasped the truth about Christ. All things derive their meaning and purpose in relation to Him. And apart from Him, it's impossible to know how to walk in obedience to the truth. And it's impossible to know how to please God. So he says, I want you to know this will as it pertains to Christ. Now this helps us reframe things, particularly about how one goes about doing God's will and executing God's will in their life. And rather than on discerning the particularities of one's path, choosing this route instead of that route, or tracing some divine line that cuts through the multiplicity of options, the emphasis lies on gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding which come about from the knowledge of God's cosmic plan in Christ. So the emphasis lies on gaining this knowledge of Christ as he pertains to all things. So discerning God's will is not so much of a matter of asking, is it this or is it that? Should I do this or should I do that? But penetrating deeper into the mystery of Christ which is to say, coming to understand his central place in all things and how all things hold together in him. So there's such a thing as practical wisdom, and though good, it's not what is in view here. The wisdom that Paul prays for is a distinctly spiritual one, as he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now God knows we need more common sense, But more so, we need a spiritual sense. Again, not some mystical or secret knowledge, like the Colossians were seeking from these angelic visions, one attained apart from any degree of maturity, but a spiritual wisdom and knowledge that comes as the inevitable byproduct of knowing God in Christ. It comes about not as some unprecedented insight, a bolt from the blue, but as the culmination of spiritual maturity. It's the eventual rewarding, it's the eventual reward, rather, of shedding one's former worldly frame of mind while simultaneously growing into a spiritual one. And at the far end of that process, as one begins to know the will of God as it pertains to Christ, and they grow in that, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, At the far end of that process, one begins to see things as they are, as they stand in relation to Christ. In fact, we might say, quite shockingly, but in accordance with the Scriptures, one begins to take on a God's eye view of things. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 16. He says, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So the spirit is the one who illumines us to these deep spiritual matters. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, quoting the Old Testament, that he will instruct him? 
He says, but we have the mind of Christ. So the spirit who's been given to us, the apostle says, puts us into the mind frame of Christ, so to speak. Now, no amount of practical wisdom and know-how can replace this. Our natural reasoning and intuition can only get us so far because it is yet to penetrate into the matters of the Spirit and the divine plan. These things can only come to us by the Spirit, the gift who has been given to us. Indeed, our natural wisdom often stumbles over spiritual matters. It looks upon Christ crucified, the very heart of the divine plan, and it sees foolishness, the apostle says. There's no one who, in their natural wisdom, looks at the cross of Christ and says, aha, there is some good sense. That's how the world is redeemed. God's will and our natural wisdom are often in conflict with one another. And though this natural wisdom is appropriate in its place, it's not sufficient for the believer. It must be transcended. Thus the apostle prays that we might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And it's our prayer too, that God might open our eyes to see Christ as the head of the cosmos and of the church. And that our lives and our thoughts and our understanding might be given shape by that one central truth. So as we understand these things, as we are transported into this frame of mind, so to speak, then the will of God becomes almost something natural to us. Now, this passage, I think, encourages us to press beyond natural wisdom into spiritual wisdom, but it also encourages us to press beyond a childish dependence in these matters. It encourages us to press beyond a childish dependence as it pertains to the will of God. Now, what do I mean here? Well, note that I didn't say a childlike dependence, which is a good thing, but a childish dependence, which I think is not so good. Now, a childish dependence is the kind of dependence that never matures beyond asking, should I do this or should I do this? Now, God may answer such prayers, but only in accommodation to our ignorance. Instead, what he intends is that his children would grow in maturity. That is, as our passage says, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Rather than always having to wait upon an answer, the goal is to know already what to do. What's acceptable for a three-year-old? Dad, is this okay? Can I do this or that thing? Is not acceptable for a 16-year-old. By that time, we'd expect him to know better having learned right and wrong, having come to understand his parents and the world around him. Now, in that same way, we must grow from a childish form of dependence to a mature one. Now, it's commendable in its dependence upon God, of course, but not so much as it does not grow in the knowledge of God. This form of childish dependence that I'm talking about is a form that has to keep asking the same questions over and over again, as if it had never learned. It repeats the same lessons, 
And while it's fine to start there, we all do, it's not fine to remain there. Because the inevitable byproduct of this increasing knowledge of God, as we become to know, as we come to know Him and His will for the world in Jesus Christ, this inevitable byproduct is knowing what He wants and intends for His children. Now, listen, in this case, the difference between a childish dependence and a childlike dependence upon God is the difference between the Apostle Paul and the Colossians. The Apostle Paul, having grown in his knowledge of God, knows what to do when faulty teaching starts to sweep through the church. He's able to articulate the truth. He says, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing these practices or listening to this doctrine because this is who Christ is. This is the will of God. And so he's able to disarm falsehood and chart a course forward that's consistent with the truth based on what he knows about God and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the Colossians, on the other hand, are much more susceptible. These things contrary to God's will come in and they're not able to put up their defenses They waver in their understanding and devotion because they're not equipped with the same knowledge, the same spiritual wisdom and understanding that the apostle has grown into. Now, the apostle Paul is an apostle. We can never expect to mature to his level. Nevertheless, we have the same spirit. So this knowledge of God, then, is like a map in our lives. It's not the terrain itself, nor is it the walking of that terrain, but it's a faithful guide. And without it, one inches forward when they could run, asking for the next step when it's already been given to them. And as one grows in their understanding, this field of vision is expanded, and they can chart a course forward consistent with the divine will. Now, certainly... There are times when our knowledge comes up short, and the only recourse is to seek an explicit sign. I have no idea what to do. I'm not making a case against that, but I am making a case for the knowledge of God as the thing that we need to execute His will. Right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So one comes with the other, and what one discovers is that really it's more about the end than it is about some potential path. It's more about growing in love for God and love for neighbor than it is about fulfilling some specific destiny that God might have for you. The path you take, the things you do, the particularities of your own life are ultimately secondary Not that they don't matter, but that they're secondary to the primary thing, which is growing in Christ-likeness. You know, the goal at the end of our lives is not to look back, having perfectly executed some foreordained plan, having never made a wrong turn to the left or right, but to have grown into the image of Christ. So we make these unscriptural dichotomies between God's perfect and permitted will Man, that drove me crazy when I was trying to figure out what to do. God has this perfect path, and you better not fall off of it. 
which create all these unnecessary anxieties about, well, did I marry the right person or did I take the right career and everything else in your life. God's will ultimately is very simple for you. Become like Christ. Learn to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the goal. Not walking the tightrope of the divine will, but to grow in faith, hope, and love. And to do so, we need the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So those three, faith, hope, and love, are the most important virtues in the Christian life. And among them, hope plays a particularly important role in this passage. The Colossians demonstrate faith, and they actively show their love, the apostle says, because the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope, in other words, grounds or enables faith and love. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not the act of hoping, as if it preceded the other two. Faith, in fact, comes first. Instead, he's talking about the content of their hope. As he says, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And Paul equates here the gospel and hope as virtually synonymous. It is this message of hope that comes to us in the preaching of the gospel, the promise of inheritance that enables us to live faithfully and lovingly in the meantime. A sure hope undergirds all our temporal efforts, making them meaningful and worthwhile in the face of adversity. And hope does that. It works backwards. It opens the door from the future, so to speak, into the present, such that what is to come strengthens us now. And what is this hope? Well, the apostle says to the Colossians that they heard it in the gospel. And he says, it is laid up for them in heaven, which connects us now to the end of the passage, which reads, verses 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The hope laid up in heaven is the inheritance that the apostle declares here. This, in other words, is the gospel message that the Colossians originally heard and believed, which transformed their lives in faith, hope, and And love. And this message is about deliverance and a future inheritance. It's not a message about what you can do or what you ought to do. It's a message rather about what God has done in Christ. God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. Apart from us, over and against us, a victory has been won. It's not some distant event to be realized, but something that we can count on here and now. It is finished business. In his death and resurrection, Christ has already fully and perfectly and sufficiently achieved our transfer out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And that's the good news. Not a message of uh, self-salvation, 
saying to you, do this and do that, but a message of salvation accomplished. God has acted apart from us in Christ and through His Spirit, purchasing for us an eternal inheritance, qualifying us for it even. There's no need to do. There's nothing to do. It's merely to receive and to take hold of what's been offered to us. There is forgiveness, there is redemption, and there is hope. Only repent and believe. So this is the gospel that has power to save and to transform our lives. This is the word that upon hearing performs its work in us. It declares hope, redemption, victory, and inheritance. And as we venture upon this hope, the former things are rooted out and planted in their place is faith and love. And as we continue to believe, not as some distant reality, but as a present truth, it continues to perform its work in us, the gospel message. So now, as we turn toward Holy Communion in celebration of the expression of our belief in this message, in it we remember not a dead man, but Christ Jesus the Lord, who conquered through his cross and resurrection. He has done a great thing for us. He has brought us light and life and made us worthy to be partakers of the inheritance with him. He loved us and gave himself for us. So we remember him and give thanks for him. And in doing so, he comes near to us. So as we believe this message in our hearts, so we receive it now into our bodies. The love of God in Christ that takes away the sins of the world, that transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So take this time now, come up from your seats to get the communion elements and take them back with you and hear and believe this gospel once again. Go ahead and do that now and I'll lead us in just a moment.